like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. The Gallup poll indicates that 45% of Protestants and 51% of Catholics attend services weekly, which means that less than half of all church members are in church on a given Sunday. You may be saying, well, that's a better percentage than I even thought. Well, if you thought that way, you were probably right, because the American Sociological Review suggests that many people stretch the truth when answering pollsters about their church attendance. Studies of actual headcounts in selected churches found that only 20% of Protestants and 28% of Catholics are in church each week. So overall, less than a quarter of all church members are actually churchgoers. And that's a lot of no-shows. Now, the early church didn't have a Gallup poll, but they didn't really need one because their attendance was 100%. And in verses 42 to 47, we get some understanding of why. What did the early church have that so many churches are missing today? We began last week to pick out seven characteristics of the early church. The first is that they were separated. Verse 41 says, those who had received His Word were baptized. They were not secret disciples. They made a stand. They made it clear who they were committed to. They were baptized saying, we have died with Christ to our life, to our plans, to our sin, to our kingdom, and we are alive to Christ, to His life, His plans, His righteousness, His kingdom. They made it clear where they stood. Fifty days earlier, they rejected Jesus saying, crucify Him. Now they embraced Him saying, He is Lord and Christ. And baptism is the outward expression of the inward reality of commitment to Him. Second thing is that they were committed in verse 42. It says they commit, continually devoted themselves to four things. The first was the apostles' teaching. They knew they had a lot to learn, but they also knew that it wasn't just head knowledge they needed, it was this life-transforming Word of God. And so they gathered together regularly to hear Peter, James, John, Matthew, the other apostles teach the truth of God. Second thing they were con continually committed to was fellowship. Now, these 3,000 individuals who were saved on the day of Pentecost were among over a million people in the streets of Jerusalem. So the likelihood is that they didn't know each other very well. In fact, earlier in chapter 2, we find that they come from all corners of the earth. And now they come together. They don't really know any, in each other, but now they've got a lot in common because they have the new birth, they have Jesus, they have forgiveness, they have the Spirit of God. They have a new understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. And they were continually sharing those things in common. And not only did they have those things in common, but they're about to have something else in common, and that is a growing opposition. And we will, we will see as we go through the book of Acts that fellowship became sweeter and sweeter as the opposition grew. Heard a story about a sheep herder in Wyoming who would observe the behavior of wild animals in the winter. He saw a pack of wolves sweep down into the valley and attack a band of wild horses. 
And when that happened, he said the horses would form a circle with their heads in the center of the circle and kick outward at the wolves, driving them away. He also watched as this same herd of wolves came down upon a band of wild donkeys. They also formed a circle, but they formed it with their heads out so they could watch the wolves. And when they began to kick, they ended up kicking one another. Some Christians are like wild donkeys. They hang out together, but they never have fellowship, so when the enemy attacks, they end up kicking each other. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, we're to stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Fellowship is sharing Christ in common. It's also sharing our common cause in common. And as we'll see next week, it's also sharing our material possessions in common with others. And that was a constant mark of the early church. Third thing they were committed to in verse 42 is the breaking of bread. Now the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper or communion has become a very elaborate ecclesiastical rite in many churches. It's something that's draped in formality today. And yet as I look at the New Testament, I don't find that to be the case. In fact, if you slide down to chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together. Two things we see here about the breaking of bread. Number one, it took place in the context of a home. They broke bread from house to house. There were no stained glass windows. It was a very informal setting where this took place. And secondly, it also took place in the context of a meal. Verse 46 says they were breaking bread from house to house. They were also taking their meals together. And if you'll remember, the Lord Jesus initiated this remembrance feast in the context of a meal. It was the Passover meal when He brought this into being. And so the early church continued that process. They met together for a meal, and then in the context of that meal, they shared together. In fact, later in the book of Acts, when we find that they met once a week, Acts chapter 20 tells us that they met together to break bread, and Paul was there, and Paul began talking. And if you remember that incident, Paul talked so long that Eutychus, who was sitting in the window, fell asleep, fell out three floors, and died. Paul went down, raised him from the dead, brought him back to the meeting, and it says he ate, got some energy, and went on preaching all night. So they broke bread in the context of a meal. And what we have to understand is, in the early church, they were in a Jewish community, and so Sunday was not the day off. Saturday was the day off. Sunday was like our Monday. And so they worked all day on Sunday. Then they gathered together Sunday evening for a potluck luck supper. They brought their food, shared it with others. In the context of that supper together, they had the Lord's Supper. That explains 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul speaks about the abuses in the church at Corinth. He says, some of you are bringing your food and eating it before others get there, and then other people come and they're hungry. And some of you are getting there and getting drunk by drinking too much wine. See, that doesn't make any sense if all we're thinking about is the loaf and the little cups of grape juice. But they met together for a meal. 
And in the context of that meal, they took the two most common things on a first century table, bread and a cup, and they remembered the Lord. Jude chapter 12 calls that feast the love feast. They gathered together for a love feast, and then they broke bread in that context. Now, what does the bread picture? Well, it pictures two things. Number one, it pictures Christ's body. Jesus said in Luke twenty-two nineteen, this is my body which is given for you. But there's a second thing that the bread symbolizes. It also pictures for us our unity as the body of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the bread pictures Christ's body, which hung on the tree. It also pictures the body of Christ, which is us today. And because there's one loaf, Paul says we are one. We are united together. Now, what does the cup picture? Two things as well. First of all, it pictures Christ's blood. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a communion in the blood of Christ? And so it's a picture of Christ's blood. It's also a picture of something else. Because Jesus said in Luke twenty-two twenty, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup is a symbol of the new covenant. Now what is the new covenant? Well, let's first ask, what is the old covenant? Well, the old covenant is the law. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 24, it's interesting there, it says that Moses had the priests sacrifice some bulls, and then he read from the covenant of the law, while the people all said to him in verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And then it says, he, he took the blood of the bulls and he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Now there was one problem with that covenant. It was dependent on their obedience. And they couldn't keep it. And that's why it's exciting when we come to Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord says through His prophet, I'm going to give you a new covenant. And it's not going to be like the old covenant which they broke. Here He describes the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 33. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will write my law on their hearts and they will know me from the least to the greatest. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant written on our hearts. The old covenant was based on man's obedience. The new covenant is based on God's forgiveness. The old covenant, they didn't really know the Lord. In the new covenant, everyone knows Him from the least to the greatest. And that's the covenant relationship that we now have with God. And the cup reminds us of that great relationship that we enjoy. Now let me add a little footnote here because there's a lot of controversy today on what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. The, the Catholic position on that is called transubstantiation. That is that the elements are transformed into the literal body and blood of Christ. That the priest consecrates them and at that moment the bread becomes his body, the wine becomes his blood. Now I have several problems with that position. Number one, it externalizes the whole thing. If the bread literally becomes his body and the wine literally becomes his blood, 
then all I have to do is partake in that and I'm getting the reality without the right heart. You see, all I have to do is show up and eat and I get it. It externalizes it. And the problem I have with that is, is multitude, but Jesus spent the last three and a half years criticizing the Jews because of their hypocrisy, because they went through the rituals and there was no reality. It would not make sense for Jesus to say, now let me bring about a ritual that all you have to do is eat and you'll have it. It externalizes the whole thing. Secondly, it also brings about a continual sacrifice. If the bread becomes Christ's body, then we are not simply remembering what he did. We are actually having his crucifixion over and over again. And in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, the scripture is clear when it says, He having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. He does not need to be sacrificed again. That's why the Catholic Church calls it the sacrifice of the Mass. It's a continual sacrifice. He doesn't need that. He was sacrificed one time for all time, and he sat down. And the third problem I have with that is that that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus took the bread in his hand and said, this is my body. Now, if that bread became his body, then we got two bodies right there. Obviously, he didn't mean that literally. And obviously, the disciples didn't take that literally because the idea of drinking blood would have been abhorrent to the disciples because it's against the Old Testament law. And as we read the New Testament, we find that over and over again, Jesus used figurative language. He said, I am the door, I am the light, I am the bread of life, I am the vine. And you have to remember that in the context of the Passover meal, he said this. Now, the Passover meal was a meal that was filled with figurative language. In fact, at one point in the meal, the father would take the bread and pass it to his family, and he would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers had to eat. Jesus took that bread, passed it to the disciples, and said, this is my body which is given for you. You say, well, if the breaking of bread doesn't bring us salvation, if it doesn't bring us the literal body and blood of Christ, what is it all about? Well, let me have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here Paul describes what he received from the Lord about the breaking of bread. Beginning in verse 24, he says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me point out six things about the breaking of bread. Number one is in verse 24, and that is it's a time of remembrance. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The night before Jesus was crucified, he ate the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover meal was a meal of remembrance. They were remembering what God had done in Egypt. How that Moses had gone to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no. And so God sent His plagues. And you remember the final plague was that He was going to send His death angel over Egypt. 
And he was going to kill the firstborn son in every house. And the only remedy was to take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, dip the hyssop in the blood, and put it on the lintel and the doorposts of your house. And God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the Passover feast was held each year to remind the Jew of Egypt and how the children of Israel were delivered from there. It was a time of remembering how God had been their deliverer and their Savior. And so Jesus takes that remembrance feast and inaugurates a new remembrance feast. Only this time, Jesus is saying, you don't have to go back to Egypt to see God as your deliverer. You simply have to go back to Calvary. And you don't have to go back to a blood-stained door. You simply have to go back to a blood-stained cross. And you don't have to celebrate the shedding of lamb's blood. You get to celebrate the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. We break bread in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. And that's an important thing because we're a forgetful people. We tend to forget. And so Jesus knew we would and He gave us something very tangible, bread and a cup, to remind us of the sacrifice that He made on the cross. Second thing we see about the breaking of bread is that it is a time of communion. Chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians in verse 16 says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And that word sharing is our Greek word koinonia that we looked at last time, the word fellowship. And so it's a sharing with Him. There is a unique sense in which at the breaking of bread, we commune with Christ. And so we not only remember Him as if we're remembering a bunch of facts, we actually share with Him. We commune with Him. We have a time of fellowship with Him in a unique way in that remembrance time. And then the third thing we see about this breaking of bread in this passage is in verse 24. And that's in the word, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. And that word given thanks is the Greek word Eucharist. And so, at the breaking of bread, we show our appreciation for the Lord. It's a time when we say, thank you. It's a time when we focus on the Lord and what He did on the cross. It's not a time when we come together to be taught or encouraged or ask the Lord for anything. It's a time when we come together and remember what He did and we say, thank you. And then the fourth thing that we see about it is that it was a time of rededication. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When we take that cup, we're reminded of the covenant relationship that we now have with God. It's a relationship different from the old covenant. It's based on His sacrifice, His forgiveness. It's everything that He did that provides us with this relationship. And so as we come, it ought to challenge us to make a rededication of ourself to the Lord. In fact, that's why he says down in verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's a time for self-examination. When I look over the last week and I say, how have I done? What have I done to fail the Lord? And in those areas where I fail, I confess that to the Lord and then I eat. It's a matter of rededication to Him fifth thing about it is proclamation verse 26 for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup 
you proclaim the Lord's death. The breaking of bread is a sermon acted out. It is like the gospel in picture form. There's the bread and there's the cup. Speaking of Christ's body and Christ's blood, which were shed on the cross. And Paul says when we do it, we proclaim His death. I've been in churches where they lock the doors when they have communion. Uh, won't, don't want any unbelievers to come in there. Don't even want any believers to come in there that aren't part of that church. And yet this verse tells me that the breaking of bread is a proclamation of the Gospel. We ought to encourage unbelievers to be there to see this picture of the Gospel carried out. The bread and the cup. Speaking of the Gospel, the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And then the sixth thing that the breaking of bread is all about is also in verse 26, and that is anticipation. It says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We're to celebrate the breaking of bread with our eyes on the clouds. We're anticipating His return. We do it anticipating the time when He will come back and we can put the symbols aside and have the reality. In fact, Jesus made this promise in Mark 14, 25. I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When we break the bread, we're not only looking back, remembering what Jesus did, we're looking forward in anticipation to His coming, expecting that He might come today. And so the breaking of bread is a time of remembrance, a time of communing with Christ, a time of giving Him thanks, a time of rededicating ourselves, a time of proclaiming the Gospel, and a time of anticipation of His coming. Who may participate in that meeting? Well, it's the Lord's Supper. It's not something that belongs to a church. It's not something that belongs to men. It's His Supper. And so if you're a believer, you can participate. You don't have to be a mature believer. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people got saved. Very same day, they're breaking bread continually. The only thing you have to be is, according to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, 28, an examined believer. You need to examine your life. Make sure you're right before the Lord. And then he says, eat. How often should it be done? We know some churches do it once a year, some do it quarterly, some do it monthly, others do it weekly. There's really no specific rules in the Scripture about how often it should be done. However, in Acts chapter 2, we see that they did it daily. Later in Acts chapter 20, we see that they did it on the first day of the week. And the indication there is that every time they met together, they broke bread. It was the center of their time together. There's no precedent in Scripture for a monthly, quarterly, or semi-annual breaking of bread. And uh, the only argument I've heard is people say, well, familiarity breeds contempt. If I do it too often, I won't appreciate it. And I always say, try that with your wife. Honey, I know I haven't been home for dinner for a while, but I want to really appreciate the next time I do that doesn't work if you really love somebody. You want to be there. And you want to be there often. 
The early church gathered for the breaking of bread continually. Now let me, let me share something else with you because I know I can trust you. The one thing I want you to get out of this is that God is more concerned about your heart than He is about the ritual. God doesn't care two cents for whether you go through a ritual if your heart isn't right. And I'm also convinced that, that God is not really concerned about the details of how we do it. I run into a lot of Christians that are worried about how you do the breaking of bread. You know, you've got to do it this way. You've got to have real wine. You've got to have grape juice. You've got to have something. You know, you've got to have crackers, matzo crackers. You've got to put the veil on. You've got to take the veil off. All worried about the ritual of it. God is concerned about the heart. Bread and wine were the two staple foods on every table in the first century. And God was simply saying, I want you to take the basic things and I want them to be a reminder of my sacrifice for you. One of the most meaningful uh, times of breaking of bread I ever had was in Yellowstone Park. And, and we were there on a Sunday and so we took toast and orange juice and remembered the Lord. And I'm sure the Lord was not in heaven going, What? see, he looks at the heart. And he was much more pleased with orange juice and toast and a heart committed to him than he is with all the formality and an ice cold heart. That's what he's looking for. The early church continually devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Fourth thing they continually devoted themselves to was prayer in verse 42. Prayer is simply another way of having fellowship with God. It's not some mystical process whereby we call out to the force. Prayer is communicating with God. Prayer is our connection to heaven and heaven's connection to us. And I am convinced that the thing that closes the line of communication faster than anything else is pride. James said in James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. How is pride evidenced in my prayer? When I say, my will be done. How is humility expressed in prayer? When I say, thy will be done. You see, prayer is not our opportunity to order God around like some kind of bellhop who art in heaven. Prayer is me aligning my will with God's will. It's me surrendering my will to God's will. And so the answers to prayer happen according to God's schedule, not my schedule. And that's why prayer takes time and prayer takes patience. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 18.1 that we ought to pray and not lose heart. And that's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 we should pray without ceasing. Prayer requires endurance. You know, it's interesting when you look at Scripture to see what Scripture does and doesn't say about prayer. Scripture doesn't teach us the posture of prayer. People in the Bible prayed standing, lifting up their hands, sitting, lying down, kneeling, bowing, lifting up their eyes to heaven, pounding on their chests. Scripture doesn't teach us the place to pray. 1 Timothy 2.8 
says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. And people in the Bible prayed during battle, in a cave, in a closet, in a garden, on a mountainside, by a river, by the sea, in the street, in Hades, in bed, in a home, in a prison, in the wilderness, in a fish, on a cross. And scripture doesn't tell us when to pray. People in the Bible are found praying early in the morning, in the mid-morning, in the evening, three times a day, before meals, after meals, at bedtime, at midnight, all night, day and night. People pray when they're young, they pray when they're old, they pray when they're doing well, they pray when they're in trouble, they pray every day, they pray always, in any posture, at any time, under any circumstances. Prayer is an essential part of a Christian's life. But the emphasis I want you to see in Acts chapter 2 is that prayer is not just a solo endeavor. Because it says the early Christians were continually devoted to four things. Three of those are co corporate things. The breaking of bread, fellowship, teaching. The fourth prayer is also a corporate thing. So what he's saying is that they gathered together for corporate prayer. You say, well, what did they pray about? Well, we're not told here. But it's interesting to look in the book of Acts at the two prayer meetings that we find. The first is in Acts chapter 4. There, Peter and John were arrested by the chief priests and the elders of Israel. They were threatened to never preach again in Jesus' name, and they were released. So they went back to their Christian brothers and sisters, and they had a prayer meeting. What do you think they prayed for? God, where were you? We almost got killed. That's not what they say. In fact, if you read that prayer in Acts chapter 4, they started out worshiping the Lord. God, you're the creator of heaven and earth. And then they said, God, you are sovereign. Even your enemies do exactly what you decide. They worship God as the sovereign. Then they ask Him for two things. Here's what they ask Him. First of all, they ask Him in verse 29, God, give us confidence to speak Your Word. We got enemies out there. We don't want you to take away the enemies. We just want you to give us confidence to speak your word. And then the second thing they ask for is in verse 30. And there they say, God, I want you to extend your hand to heal and work wonders and miracles. God, give us the confidence to speak your word. And then, God, we want you to intervene in the lives of people to impact. And that's a prayer that got answered. If you read chapter 4 and verse 31, it says the house they were in were shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Second prayer meeting is in Acts chapter 12. Peter's been arrested. His death is imminent. They're gathered together in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and they're praying. What are they praying for? They're praying for Peter to get delivered. God answers their prayer. Peter is delivered. Peter comes and knocks on the door. Servant girl comes to the door, hears Peter's voice, runs in, interrupts the prayer meeting, and says, it's Peter at the door. You know what they said to him, to her? Acts chapter 12, verse 15, they said, you're out of your mind. In the Greek, that is, you're nuts. Leave us alone, let us keep praying. Now, when I read that, it reminds me oftentimes of my prayers. 
I, I pray the right words, but I don't always have the faith to believe that God's really going to do what I ask. But you know what that prayer meeting also tells me? It tells me that they were focused on praying not just for themselves. They were praying for others. They were, Peter was asleep, we're told. They were awake, spending the night praying for Peter because they cared that much about him. Now what's that tell me about their prayers? Their prayer meetings were not just shopping lists of requests. They were worship to God. And their prayer meetings were not just about physical needs, they were about spiritual needs. God, give me the boldness to speak for you. And their prayers were not just about themselves. They were praying about others. Prayer is one of those things that many churches today have put on the back burner. And I'm convinced that as a church, the priority that we give to prayer is a measure of our spiritual temperature. The priority that we give to prayer is the measure of our spiritual temperature because it's a measure of our dependence upon God. I can walk around all day and say I'm depending upon the Lord. But unless I pray, I'm really depending on who? Me. And again, that comes back to that problem of pride. I'm saying, God, I can handle this. I don't need you. And that's a scary thing to say because God will often drive you to your needs in prayer by your circumstances if you take that stance. Prayer is a measure of my dependence on God. I can say I depend on Him, but if you look at my day timer and there's no time set apart to pray, then I'm not dependent upon God. And secondly, prayer is a measure of our effectiveness. Do we want to be effective for God? It's not going to happen apart from prayer. I like what Oswald Chambers said, prayer does not equip us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And the early church understood that. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. How would you fit into the early church? That question can be answered real simply by saying, am I separated like they were? Have I made it clear that I'm identified with Christ and I've separated myself from my past life? And number two, am I committed? Am I continually devoting myself to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer? Next week we're going to talk about the five other marks of the early church. But this morning, I just want to challenge you to deal with those first two. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer, but you've never been baptized. You need to make that step of obedience to say publicly, I'm identified with Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and, and your commitment level is not where it ought to be. Maybe today is the day when you come to the Lord and look, say, Lord, I'm going to be committed to continually devote myself to these things that mark the early church. As you're dealing with the Lord this morning, I'm going to ask that we sing together number 24. I'm going to ask you to stand as we do so. And as God has spoken to your heart today, I'm going to ask you to come forward. Whatever your need, whatever your desire today, you come as we sing number 24.